Welcome to this uh, intensive care medicine podcast on a trial uh, on oxygen therapy and high flow nasal therapy in African children with pneumonia. And uh, I'm happy to have here with us uh, Mark Peters from London interviewing Katie Maylan, the principal investigator of the study. Hi, my name's Mark Peters, and it's my pleasure to be talking to Prof Maitland, Kath, um, who uh, was the chief investigator on the um, COAST study we're going to talk about today. I, I should make clear I was involved in this trial as um, an independent member of the trial steering committee, which, as you may hear, will be was a fascinating and um, unusual um, experience. And, and um, Kath, I wanted to start off just for those people who may be listening who perhaps aren't familiar with um, the setting in which this trial was um, conducted. Could you just sort of paint a picture of, of well, where this is and, and what's available as usual care, perhaps? Thank you, Mark. Um, and also thank you to um, Intensive Care Medicine for inviting me to record this podcast. Um, I've been based full time in um, Africa for over 20 years now, and my core research has been to try and uh, look at the evidence of all, all of what should have be happening in the emergency room. Um, to date, we've looked at fluids, we've also looked at transfusion, but one of the big key uh, aspects is, is oxygen. Why did we need to do an oxygen trial? Um, there's very strong recommendations as in the WHO guidelines as to who to give oxygen to. Um, obviously this has been based on a very weak level of evidence because there are no control trials. One of the uh, big issues is that um, most children who are identified to receive oxygen are identified using clinical signs alone. Pulse oximetry is not largely used. Uh, the clinical signs are very, very poor at, at, at poorly specific at identifying the ones who are truly hypoxemic. This means that the, there's an enormous burden on the surface, on the services, I'm sorry, um, of children needing oxygen. And the, the actual, uh, what is available is, is very scant and often um, not there because of supply issues. It's very expensive to uh, supply tanks all the time. WHO's preferred source of oxygen is um, oxygen concentrators. Uh, they concentrate oxygen out of the air and then for uh, medical oxygen. But these can only run when you've got electricity. I'm, I'm not the only one that's aware of this. The WHO have conducted a very large uh, cross-site survey of pneumonia preparedness or epidemic preparedness a long time ago. And they realized that most hospitals reported lack of oxygen, lack of, um, uh, of uh, a constant supply of electricity as the key challenges to oxygen therapy. So this is why we needed to do this trial in Africa for African children, because it was a really important question for them. So would that go, would you go as far as saying that, um, auction was not standard of care for the majority of the children uh, it, admitted with pneumonia. If you actually look at the guidelines and you're sitting with a piece of paper in front of you, the our guidelines say it is standard of care. But if you're standing by the bedside uh, uh, and you've got a whole line of kids who are already sitting on oxygen therapy and another child comes through the door, they need oxygen. Who are you going to take it off? So that's what happens in reality. In reality, there's two issues, obviously, A, there's just not enough, even when you've got oxygen, but B, 
children who are often identified on clinical signs and they do not pick up hypoxemia very well. So uh, pragmatically, uh, the standard of care often is permissive hypoxemia. Understood. And, and of course, we can't pretend that um, in high income countries, we know uh, where the risk and best benefit thresholds for um, oxygen targeting in critical illness sit. Um, okay, so um, can you say a word or two about the, the study design and the, the main results? Um, it is it is slightly complex, but there's um, uh, so there's yes. probably quite a lot to say. But, so we, um, we had two main questions. The one question was who needs oxygen? So if you're going to ask that question, you have to design a controlled trial. There's no way around that. So we tried to make the controlled trial uh, address a, a, a study population, which was not going to... And so we used access to databases, which we already had, and um, across uh, from saturations from 80 to 90% uh, saturations, the mortality across that whole group was identical. So that is the group who we chose to actually randomize immediately to no immediate oxygen um, or oxygen given in the standard way, which is usually just by a face mask or a, a, a little nasal prongs or nasal cannula. And that's what we call low flow. Um, and the, the second question was that because there is no access to respiratory support, mechanical ventilation, Many children who come in with severe pneumonia, they've been panting for hours, if not days. You going along at a rate of uh, 60, you will become exhausted. Also, you're not ventilating your lungs very well. So that our second question was, can a level of respiratory support provided on the pediatric ward, um, in this case, we chose high flow nasal therapy, um, can that save lives, prevent respiratory exhaustion, improve outcome? Um, I'm not advertising Fisher and Paykel at all, but we chose to use high flow nasal therapy. A, they donated for the for the trial because we went to them. They didn't come to us um, because it actually was originally developed for home use for COPD men with COPD or uh, men and women with COPD because it was and it was very simple to give, very simple to teach. The other really attractive thing um, about giving high flow PEEP uh, was the fact that actually you could blend both oxygen and air. So although we call it high flow, it's high flow uh, respiratory support and not necessarily burning all through the, the oxygen. So um, we were very careful to design a trial that also could uh, provide respiratory support, but not utilize the precious resources of oxygen. That's great. So two questions sort of arise out of that. You, so if those target uh, with that population with this baseline peripheral oxygen saturation, you, you must have had an estimate of the mortality you were going to see in the control group. So we used a very large database of unselected um, hospital admissions and looked at mortality between 80 and 90 percent saturations. Uh, uh, and a 48 hour mortality rate was expected to be between nine and 10%. Um, for those who had saturations below 80%, we were looking at uh, uh, mortality rates of between 25 and 30%. Thank you. Uh, and was there much familiarity with the, the high flow devices in, in this setting? Oh, absolutely not. 
No, no, not at all. And we spent, uh, we actually brought trainers across who had ICU uh, uh, specialities. We did a, a very, very dead, a, a, a long time where we actually trained people. But once people were trained on the machine, if you remember the first TSC meeting, we brought a high flow machine to, to the actual meeting yes. and, and the study teams were training the rest of the audience. They felt very comfortable about how to uh, how to use the machine, how to titrate up the flows down and the flows, and also the blending of the oxygen and uh, air. So they became very familiar with its use very quickly. Thanks for reminding me. That first um, trial steering committee meeting, Kath, there was a, an interesting discussion about um, attitudes prevailing to oxygen therapy in hospital um, in this setting. Can you say a little more about that? Yes, I flashed up a paper that was uh, published from Malawi saying that communities and patients fear oxygen therapy. And uh, we certainly weren't capitalising on that, but that was a, a, a fear that was there. I think essentially uh, communities thought if you turned on oxygen to the patient, they were in the last stages of their illness. And they used to, and people used to rush to hospital to be there too. Um, and so it, 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 so when you ask people, do you, you know, we're going to do a randomised trial, it wasn't as, um, as difficult for people to say, yes, I'd like to be included. Um, but again, we were not trying to capitalise on fear, but it was, it was a different, uh, potentially, attitude that might have been prevalent in Europe. So, so that's really interesting. I mean, we, it'll, it'll probably come out later in our discussion, but clearly medical and nursing staff have a deep attachment to oxygen therapy um, and um, and high or normal um, oxygen saturation. So it's fascinating that um, the setting into which you do the study may have a, um, a complex impact um, on how that's perceived by the different stakeholders in the trial. Okay, so we, we've, we've talked a bit about background. Um, what about some headline results? Okay, so the, the, the key headlines was that the trial was stopped early. Um, it was, and we can talk a little bit about that later, Mark, but uh, the trial was stopped um, by the trial steering committee of which Mark was a member. Um, it was a strong recommendation um, for, on the grounds of feasibility. Um, feasibility doesn't mean that we could never uh, get to our endpoint, but it was feasible. It was, became unfeasible due to the number of stoppages that the trial had, un, had, had, had in Uganda owing to a, a campaign um, to try and stop the trial, uh, largely run by a single individual on the grounds that the trial was killing many thousands of children in Uganda. That's, that's what his mantra was, I'm afraid. Okay, so let, let's just put that aside for the well, moment. That, that and, was one headline, but the actual <laughs> That is a headline, results. but let's Sorry. just put that aside for a moment. And let's, let's because you, you still managed to perform by far the largest trial of um, oxygen therapy that's been um, conducted uh, in children with some 1800 recruits. So, so tell us what you found in the different groups. Okay, so um, so it, let's report the, uh, the permissive hypoxemia stratum. Um, and that was the much larger stratum and twice as many children were enrolled in the permissive hypoxemia stratum compared to the others by design. So it was two to one to one randomization. And we found overall mortality was 1.6%, 48-hour mortality, substantially lower than our predicted mortality. And clearly, with such a low mortality, there was no difference between arms. 
um, the actual arm that had the, the slightly higher mortality, the low flow arm, 2.2%. Um, but uh, um, as I say, that, that was, there was no difference. The other interesting finding was because we were able to look at high flow versus low flow across the whole trial, um, we actually um, showed, um, albeit um, uh, um, on the numbers that we had, that uh, providing respiratory support with high flow um, re uh, reduced mortality by 40%. The adjusted odds ratio is 0 0.06, um, with a p-value of 0 0.08. Obviously, that's it, um, it's not sufficient to, to call that a big result, but it, it clearly indicates that this is a therapy that does need to be re-looked at in this context. Thank you. So it's, it's always difficult when a trial hasn't um, uh, provided the power that was anticipated. And obviously there's two reasons for that. One is that um, just under half the intended sample size was recruited. Um, uh, but the other is that the, the mortality was so much lower than predicted. So somewhere around a quarter of the um, expected mortality. Can you say some more about thoughts you may have about why that happened? Well, we monitored children. Um, so children were intensively monitored and we turned off oxygen uh, for those who had corrected their saturations. Overall, yes. the, the volumes of oxygen that were used in the trial, including children who uh, were randomized to receive it, were very, very conservative. Um, uh, um, and um, so, for example, in the high flow arms, uh, we were often running that in room air alone. So we, I, I talked at the beginning about being able to blend oxygen and air. We were mindful of trying to use as much air to provide respiratory support. And we found that children correct, largely corrected their saturations without needing to entrain oxygen. So overall, we used very much, much less oxygen than it's being used in other studies. Um, and, and high flow versus low flow, there was less oxygen being used in the high, those randomized to high flow than those um, receiving it by low flow standard of care. Um, the permissive hypoxemia arm, we obviously, as I said, we monitored very carefully. Only 15% of those children ever required oxygen. That meant that they dropped their saturations below um, 80%. Um, and was there a sort of threshold? Could we say, was it all those children who had saturations below a certain level? No, there was, there was no trend. It, there was nothing that could say, actually, it, at this point, you know, um, I wouldn't be happy withholding for oxygen because it was right across the thing, 15% overall. So, that meant that 85% of children had a, um, didn't require oxygen, yet they only had a 1.6% mortality, uh, overall mortality, which I find very surprising. It's extraordinary. The, I mean, I, you're down at something like a quarter of your expected mortality or even mm -hmm. lower. And yeah. were, were the um, site staff doing other things to these patients? Well, we provided all the medications that they were meant to get. So everything else across the trial was the same. Uh, we'd standardised things. Children weren't receiving fluid boluses. I, you might want to know. You probably know the reason why for that. And obviously, they were uh, following conservative transfusion strategies, again, um, informed by some of the, uh, the publications from our group. But um, yes, that uh, um, antibiotics, uh, antimalarials were provided. 
and 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 monitoring. And I think monitoring is a really important aspect. Um, so this is a this is a, an interesting way for me into um, the other big part of the um, uh, experience of the coast study, which is how a collective research enterprise is valued um, by the society that that enterprise is taking place in versus individual clinician preference. And I, I, um, I had the privilege of writing an editorial about this with other TSC members that accompanies your trial. And I, and I just, it's striking to me that something about the research process of conducting this study reduced the mortality dramatically. And so we can't lose sight of the non-specific benefit of doing um, research, even if any individual um, has a concern about the risk and benefit of the intervention as described. Do you agree, Kath? I think so. I mean, especially if you've got a well-constituted uh, trial team that has experience, we have a track record and they also have all of the trial governance procedures in place, including obviously a, a, an, um, a TSC, the independent uh, interim analysis done by the data monitoring committee. All of those are in place and all of the reports were in place. Yet uh, every time we had another group reviewing us, they seemed to start at uh, ground zero again. It, it was we, almost as if we'd never, it hadn't even gone through ethics review. Um, and, but I also want to be very clear that the ethics and regulatory bodies stood beside us and did not ever uh, revoke the actual ethics committee. So I wonder if, uh, if um, it, approvals. Yeah. So I wonder if if the struggles you and the team um, underwent with um, Coast are an exaggerated version of what every trialist has to. Um, deal with when there's a range of clinician opinion about um, interventions and um, I mean oxygen as we've heard people are particularly emotive about oxygen because it's sort of such a core um, element of um, metabolism and it's a um, it's, it's an intervention we all learned at medical school to use very widely um, but actually that same balance between the individual clinician's choice and um, the undoubted value of conducting that same choice, if you like, within a trial um, structure um, leaves you in two very different positions. In one, you have a persistence of the ignorance that um, means the trial is needed in the first place. And the other, you, you resolve um, some of that uncertainty by performing the, the trial. And I just think we, we all have to address some of this. There's always enthusiasts and um, uh, skeptics about any trial intervention. Um, I just wonder if auction is uniquely emotive. Um, I wonder if you think that's that's a fair analysis, Kath. I think that nobody there ever questioned the, uh, uh, the role of oxygen before. Um, I think probably the first questions came out uh, with its use in neonates and uh, the, the harm that it was seeming to be caused there. Uh, yes. There's obviously a, a, an emerging literature that I think a lot of people aren't aware of that, you know, oxygen, you know, when used in the right time at the right dose, um, it, it is probably life saving. But 
um, it, it has been shown in, in quite a number of studies to be harmful. And I think that that awareness is not there. And I think we have to understand is like anything that we do as doctors, you know, the, the therapies that we're giving are drugs and, uh, and oxygen's not being treated as a, as a drug. Um, it's, it, and it's certainly, I mean, you know, nobody prescribes it. Nobody checks on it as, as well as, you know, all of the other things that people do. Um, and uh, it, it is, it is, doesn't have that same, um, uh, or as other medications do in terms of the drug, the prescription chart, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and um, yes, I mean, I, I can't comment from what we found, but I mean, certainly um, has the mortality historically in uh, across Africa for the poor outcomes in pneumonia, has that, is that as a result of people not receiving oxygen? And our trial basically says, well, I'm not quite sure, it might be other things. Um, uh, because, yes. Yes, as I say, we were very conservative across the whole trial in the amount of oxygen that we gave. And it's also shown that um, higher levels of monitoring and some sort of structure around that process may be associated with non-specific improvements in outcome, which is a fascinating mm -hmm. result. If, if you were going to do this now, if you were going to... Uh, I'm sure you aren't going to repeat this study now because of the, um, the difficulties that were involved with it. But if you were planning this or a very similar study, knowing what you've learned in the last four years or so doing this, how do you think you might do it differently? Um, we did an honest trial, Mark. Um, yeah. We did a trial that was well designed. It, it got through external peer review um, and uh, and it was the right trial for the right population. Um, and I don't uh, as I say, we did engage with the uh, uh, Uganda and Kenya pediatric associations. We had letters of endorsement for the trial. I think we went above and beyond what normally would happen for these sort of things. Um, yes, so okay. what, how would I redesign the trial? I don't, I think that that was the right trial for the population. Um, obviously, there's a very exciting potential finding of the high flow versus low flow. Um, do I have the energy <laughs> to be able to take <laughs> that forward? I think I'd let somebody else ask those questions, but it would be nice to see, I mean, because there's not that many type of trials that, like this that are being done in Africa. It would be good if somebody else took up that mantle. Great. I think that's a fantastic point on which to finish, but also to, to say thank you from the trial steering committee and uh, from ICM readers and I think um, the paediatric um, ICU and um, acute medicine communities for um, doing all this work. I think it does really challenge the fundamentals um, and hopefully that will feed into um, newer and better evidence um, in the near future. Thank you. Thank you.